for us a continuation of this period one where you're 1450 to 1648. And I realize that a lot of things that we're going to talk about today are going to have some of its history before 1450, but it will lead very nicely into this period uh, right into 1490 in the 1490s. Uh, where we are going to be discovering the, the the new world, which is not really the new world. It's just the undiscovered European undiscovered world. Uh, but if we look at what the Europeans thought the world looked like in 1492, here it is. Now they are missing some things a little bit. Uh, first of all, yes. And someone in my earlier class also said that. Where's Italy? They, how did they miss the boot? Like the boot is very prominent. But Italy, according to this old map, is somewhere in there. Yay. Nice. <laughs> Woohoo! It's in there. Um, now, Africa is very interesting looking. That's Africa. Uh, and it looks a little bit more like a stump than it does much else. As we know, Africa looks a little bit better than that in real life. There's Europe. Uh, Asia is over here. They missed half the world. Now... We know that because obviously uh, North and South America are large land masses that they will somewhat leave out. They also left the poles out, which was a bit of an oopsie. And they don't even have Australia. So they're trying. They are. Uh, now, what I think is hilarious about this particular map is that they did, though, include the trade winds right here. So they have these people that are blowing on the map. And that is going to demonstrate where the trade winds are coming from because that's helpful, I'm sure. It probably was helpful for people that actually were sailing, but um, it's just kind of ironic that this is how they decided to do that. Now, we're gonna look at some of the motivations for overseas trade. And we're also gonna reference some of the stuff that we talked about in this class earlier so that we access some of that prior knowledge that you guys have been trying to reach for today. Now. One of the early reasons for motivations to find overseas expansion and, and look for overseas exploration and expansion is the fact that the Crusade era demonstrated to Europe that they needed to find different places to trade with and needed to find new, new routes to get there because the traditional routes were, mm, let's just say, dangerous. So they needed to find a place that they could have consistent trade uh, through a non-dangerous route. This one right here, the Renaissance, is very important for us because we just finished the Renaissance era, but we did talk about this in the Renaissance and we called it a specific term. What is curiosity about other lands and people called? Remember that term? Exoticism. So if you remember back to the Titian painting that I showed you that where you had the lady with her slave boy and she like dressed up her slave in very nice clothing and gave him a nice little earring and that whole thing. So uh, that is going to be a very common theme for your social and wealthy elites in that era is to kind of accumulate stuff, peoples and overseas things that are considered exotic. That's a way of expressing your wealth um, in this time. You also have the Reformation. Now, the Reformation, by the time you get to, because obviously early in the Reformation, they're really just doing it in Europe. But by the time you get to around 1550, now you're starting to see uh, a movement towards refugees, meaning what is a refugee? Someone taking leave from the place they came from to go find safety somewhere else. So if you're a refugee during the Reformation, 
you're probably a Lutheran or a Catholic living in the Holy Roman Empire, moving to a new place. Or maybe you're a Puritan that might have possibly sort of started a civil war in England and then maybe after 10 years got chased out. Oopsie, and then have to go to the new world. So refugees are fleeing religious persecution. Um, and then, of course, missionaries, which most of the missionaries early on are going to be either from the Jesuit order or many of the Catholic countries like Spain and Portugal specifically that are going to accumulate territory in the New World. And so this is the reason that to this day, much of Latin America and all the way out to the Philippines is incredibly Catholic, majority Catholic, because that's where much of their traditional cultural religious background comes from, is from the Spanish missionaries that came in and uh, did work there. So that is one thing that's happening. Also, the monarchs are seeking new sources of revenue. And I do want to talk briefly about wealth and uh, economics with you guys, because in this class, there's there's kind of a um, economics goes through a couple of different shifts. Early on, people kind of see economics and monetary wealth as being just kind of the accumulation of stuff. We call that bullion. Um, you can write down that term if you want, bullion, B-U-L-L-I-O-N. I think it's two L's. It might be one L. I'm not sure exactly if it's one or two. But bullion, in its most simple form, is the accumulation of stuff. I know that seems very basic, but it could be gold, silver, rubies, diamonds. It could be all sorts of just stuff. Yes? So it's basically just hoarding. Yeah, it's hoarding. Yeah, it's, it's hoarding. And the reason that this is not real wealth is why? A lot of those things, gold, silver, diamonds, things that are rare, rare metals and things like that, they really just become a different version of a monetary system, which means what? Money. Just a, a form of money. And so if you have a ton of silver, it's not rare anymore, right? It's just like a normal money supply. If you have a ton of money in the money supply, it's not rare anymore, and therefore it's not worth anything. And so early in European history, and you can write this down as well, the early form of economics is called mercantilism. And this will be spelled out later by a man named Colbert during the French uh, King Louis XIV's rule. Colbert is just exactly how it sounds, C-O-L-B-E-R-T. But what mercantilism, M-E-R-C-A-N-T-I-L-I-S-M, what mercantilism is, is the accumulation of stuff with the combination of economic nationalism. The idea that you just kind of put up high trade barriers. Let's put it in modern terms. This is economic nationalism like what we are doing right now in the United States. What we try to do today, it, in our, under our current administration, is put up trade barriers or tariffs on China specifically so that people buy American. Now, I will tell you, Mercantilism is really good in the short term, but it is generally dangerous in the long term, at least historically speaking, because what ends up happening is that if you are in a period of economic nationalism, just like regular old nationalism, what, what tends to happen is people start to compete with each other, and that competition breeds, for lack of a better way of explaining it, war. So... The issue with economic nationalism is it because it's inherently competitive that people are more willing to go to war with another country for economic purposes. Whereas 
a, a form of economics like capitalism, it actually somewhat reduces the idea of going to war with each other because you are reliant on another country for certain goods. And so you don't want to go to war. Today, it, it'd be ridiculous for us to go to war specifically with Saudi Arabia. Why? They got the oil. And if we need the oil, like the other thing, the thing that happened the other day where uh, someone attacked to destroy oil reserves, that bumped our oil prices 30 to 40 cents overnight. One attack. Think of going to war with Saudi Arabia. What you would now have is oil prices would probably double within a couple of weeks, if not a month. And that's in, in real terms, that's a big deal to your average consumer. To your average consumer that spends, I don't know, 60 to $70 a week on transportation, if you're spending $150 a week on transportation, that's a drastic shift, right? That's in today's terms, three to $400 more per month that you're spending on just going to your job. Um, and so I, I know that I'm kind of, I feel like you might feel like I'm drifting to like too far, but it all starts with this concept of mercantilism. And the reason that I want to focus on this now is that this is going to be incredibly important to us. And to just get back to your prior knowledge, we talked a little bit last unit in the Renaissance about old money versus new money. So someone tell me, where is true wealth placed? In land, right? In the, the idea that you have to root your money into something that lasts. Monetary systems, no matter what they are, are not lasting money. And the example that I can give you in this unit that we're in right now is Philip II. Philip II is the king of Spain, eventually will become the king of Portugal as well. He is accumulating massive amounts of silver from the New World and just dumping that silver into Southern Europe to the point where you will actually see the, the wealth of Europe goes from where it used to be in the South. It just pushes west and north to where the other places become far more powerful because they don't have a hyperinflated economy because their economy is not dying because someone is dumping monetary value into it. Okay. So when we look at this stuff, you got to realize that just because they're getting the pretty monetary wealth, that, that is not actually going to, in the end, make them powerful. In capitalism, how do we judge wealth? It's actually not by land, it's by something else. In our new economic model of capitalism, which is new since 17... There, there are two most important things in history happened in 1776. This is a joke, but it's kind of true. The birth of America and capitalism. Same year, 1776. So uh, Adam's this very easy way to remember capitalism, actually, is to remember that it started the same year we did. Adam Smith writes The Wealth of Nations, which is the most important book in the history of capitalism, in 1776. And he's going to describe the capitalist system, which is built on what should you judge an economy on? Starts with a P. Production. It's the amount you can produce, not the amount that you have monetary money. That, that's not as important. That's why today we judge people's economies by their GDP, gross domestic product the amount a country can actually produce. And the only time you're in a real issue is if your country has more debt than you can produce. Now you have a problem. Um, we're getting close. I'm sure it'll be fine. 
you guys will figure it out. Now, uh, here's some new technology. In this period, does anyone know what these do? What does the astrolabe do? It does look like a weird compass. It is kind of a weird compass because you're looking at the stars. You're not looking at other. So the astrolabe utilizes uh, the stars to kind of help you understand where you are. Um, the other thing that becomes probably the, one of the most important ones is the sextant. And the reason is because this particular device has what is kind of like a, a looking glass and then a couple of different magnifying glasses that you can you know, kind of work with. And then it, it has a swivel unit that can help you understand where you are based on the horizon line or like land. So you can kind of swivel to see where it is and then measure distance. And so the sextant helps you really well in creating these mapping devices because before they're just like, good enough. Now they're just like, okay, how far is it? Okay, how far? Like they, they could actually give you a better measure of how far things are. And so the maps are going to become far more accurate um, at that point. Yes. Uh huh. Uh, whenever people went into South America, were people getting really lost because they're following that? And no, no. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I don't know uh, is the best way that I can answer that. Uh, my maritime history is less than my European history. So, um, yes. Um, someone is trying to break into my screen and I have to, uh, well, that'll go away unless it's someone in here who's trying to break into the screen, but we'll figure that out, I guess, here in a second. Um, so the other thing, and I know you can't see this, you will once they stop trying to jump into my screen here. Uh, the other thing that you see is the growth and you can write this down. The, the Portuguese will use the caravel as a, uh, a new ship that is going to be used pretty much throughout the age of exploration. And then you also see like a wheel locking pistol that's also going to be used. Now, this period is kind of the beginnings of Jared Diamond's guns, germs and steel. So if we're looking at why Europe starts to, hey, we're back, why Europe starts to come uh, to the forefront and dominates in a couple of places throughout the world and, and start extracting resources, it really is that concept of guns, germs, and steel. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit today is kind of how those things set up uh, for Europe. Now, the next guy that is on the next slide has probably got the most ironic name in all of human history because his name is Prince Henry the Navigator, and he didn't ever navigate. But what he did is he invested heavily in navigation. So He's the one who starts the school of Lisbon, Lisbon, which is a uh, maritime school um, and is a school of navigation. And that will be kind of the forefront of a lot of these new technologies and whatnot that eventually the Portuguese and the Spanish will both sail to the new world using a lot of the things that came out of the school of navigation in Lisbon. And that is Prince Henry, the navigator. Now, what you might tell me is, hey, Cyril, he's before 1450. Should I know him? The answer is kind of yes. Now, will he probably be on a test? Probably not. If he was, it would just be about how he created the School of Lisbon, which was that uh, School of Navigation. Other than that, I doubt you'll get much on him at all on an AP exam. Here's what it looks like today. And like most old schools, they are now museums because 
They don't really have a school of navigation currently in Lisbon. They don't need that anymore. So now they just make money on people buying tickets to go there. Um, now, the thing that we had to deal with, and this actually happens a couple times in European history. And if you're doing, remember how in your close reading assignments, you do like connections to try to get a four, you get that like continuity and change over time or comparison or whatever. Well, let me compare for you this Treaty of Tordesillas. The Europeans are doing to the New World what they will later do to Africa under uh, the colonial period of Africa, what they, they called the scramble for Africa. So back then, the Treaty of Tordesillas is where they go to the Pope and go, look, we don't want to fight each other over the New World. So let's draw a line on a map and everything on this side of the map you'll take and everything on this side you'll take. So they kind of just divvy it up and we'll just deal with the line. Well, the first line was pretty funny looking because it's right here. And so Portugal got that, which was all of nothing, pretty much. And so they're like, okay, let's try to draw another line here. So they, they actually move the line over a little bit, which basically gives Portugal what? Brazil. So today, much of Brazil is still predominantly Portuguese speaking, whereas the rest of the New World is mostly Spanish. Now, the reason, and we could possibly guess, postulate that the reason that Spain got the majority of the New World is because the person who drew the line just so happened to be a Spanish pope. And his name was Pope Alexander VI, which is the guy that you should remember as being the Borgia Pope, who's the one that possibly sort of maybe had three illegitimate children that possibly sort of should have caught it, might have been in a love triangle. And it was only awkward if you're thinking about it. So um, Pope Alexander VI is the one who draws the line, and he's a Spanish pope who does this thing. Spain gets a lot. And as you know today, like, Spanish language is all the way out to the, the Philippines. Um, and you also have Catholicism, which both the Spanish and the Portuguese are exporting to the New World, which is why much of Latin America to this day is still very Catholic, as well as uh, the Philippines. Now, one of the guys that becomes very important for us is Christopher Columbus. Now, he's one of the few explorers that we're going to look at. We're also going to look at Magellan briefly. Uh, and then on Monday, we're going to look at the conquerors or conquistadors, which are uh, Pizarro and Cortez that are going to take over some age-old empires, the Incan and Aztec empires as well. So um, here's Christopher Columbus. Now, there's a bit of a, uh art history theory that's involved with this Christopher Columbus uh, painting here. And this painting actually looks a lot like it's being done during um, the Mannerist phase. And mannerism is, uh, it starts around Spain. One of the mannerist, uh, early mannerist pa painters, his name is El Greco, which means the Greek, because uh, his original name was very Greek. And if you guys know much about Greek names, they're very long with lots of Ks and things in them. Uh, so they become very difficult to say. And so the Spanish were like, nah, your name's the Greek. <laughs> so they, they nicknamed him the Greek. And he's like, fine, I'll deal with it. Um, so anyway, Christopher Columbus is throwing up a gang sign here. It's right there. Uh, now this is, uh, this gang sign is pos and we're guessing because a lot of this actually happens during the Mannerist phase and the Mannerist phase is where people would get patron, pa uh, portraits done for themselves mostly that were not really meant to be displayed for anyone other than themselves. Uh, this is very different than the Renaissance unit where, in the Renaissance, people were getting things done to be displayed out for everyone to see. In the Mannerist phase, 
this comes after the Spanish Inquisition. And in the Spanish Inquisition, everyone's very afraid of not being Catholic. Okay, And so this, this look is a very common theme for people that they considered old Christian, which means Catholic. Uh, the one that looks like this is sometimes people called it new Christian. Uh, and so if you see this, it's probably because they're either Protestant or a, what we call a converso. What is a converso? Converted. So th those people in Spain that converted and didn't die would be conversos. And they are the ones that are not old Christian. They're new Christian. This is old Christian. This is new Christian. Uh, and in art history, you'll actually see this quite a bit. Now, it is a theory and not a fact because we're not sure. Mostly because in this period, and I, I'm sure that there are art historians that out there that would just be like, no, that doesn't work for me. I have pure evidence that that's not an actual thing. That's just because people didn't want to paint all of the hand or something like that. And you know what? Maybe they're right. I don't know. But one thing that I do know is the Mannerist period is incredibly personal. And they are not meant to be seen by anyone other than you or maybe your close family. And so in many Mannerist paintings, people would actually hide things that they would never show someone else. Um, and so what you would see is in a Mannerist, they, they might actually have like a, a Protestant book or something or like laid in the painting and they might live in a very Catholic region. And you're like, you shouldn't have that. Like, that's not a good idea. Well, it wasn't meant to be seen by anyone other than them or their close relatives. So we do know that that is the case. So we, we guess that this is very possible. You also see this particular gang sign a lot in El Greco's painting. So when I do show you El Greco later and do like a little art history review, which I'll do for you um, for Euro, I'll show you this in El Greco's stuff. Now, Columbus makes four voyages to the New World. He did kind of miss Florida four times. So he didn't actually find what eventually would become the United States. He found Cuba and Hispaniola, which is really just the islands off the coast. Um, he missed the other stuff. But here's Magellan. Magellan is technically the one who is credited with circumnavigating the globe. The only problem is he died. So his boat made it, but he didn't. Um, not even his body, because they couldn't retrieve his body. Uh, it was kind of in an issue. Now, yes, you read about it in World of Only Fire, or maybe earlier in your life. Now, I do want you to write something down. It's called the Columbian Exchange. Some of you guys might already know what the Columbian Exchange is. And if you do, that is great. You are going to put Columbian Exchange equals triangular trade. Those are somewhat interchangeable terms. Triangular trade is just a very easy way to remember it because it does pretty much look like a triangle. Also, within that, I'm going to give you some uh, other language that I want you to write down. So make sure you have Columbian Exchange equals triangular trade. Now, remember how I was going to put up something on the board that's going to be kind of annoying to write down and it's a little bit long? That's this next slide. So the groaning can just be for a minute and then we'll get over the groaning and then you'll write down the thing. And I'll tell you how to do it because it's a little easier than what it looks like the first time you see it. So this is what the Columbian Exchange looks like. Thank you for humoring me. Now, um, it should look like a triangle because it is one. And what I would do is in your notes, I would put this triangle at the top. You want to put Europe, then you put Africa. And then you can either call this the New World or we could call it Latin America as well. That, that works fine. 
uh, for this. And I'm going to explain to you how this triangular or Colombian exchange is working. Now, on your triangle, you want to put on this little one right here, you guys see this line there? You're going to call that the middle passage. It's also known as the slave trade. But that is also somewhat of an interchangeable term, is the middle passage or the slave trade. And it's that passage between Africa to the New World that is funneling slaves to the New World. I'm going to erase this, so you may want to write it down now, because I'm going to erase it so that you can see the other stuff. Make sure you have the middle passage. You do want to identify that that is considered the slave trade. Now, as far as what the rest of this is, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly kind of go through this. I'm going to briefly introduce to you what's on the other slide, and then I'm going to shut off the podcast and let you write down everything, okay? Because there's no reason for me to sit here on a podcast for five empty minutes, all right? Um, so what is on this slide and the way that you look at it, everything that is in red are the things that are the most uh, traded items, meaning the things that became the most important items for the regions that they are going to. The things that are underlined are the diseases that are being exchanged between both regions. Um, and then I kind of will explain to you how they are going. So everything that is trinkets, guns, liquor, as well as this entire bottom section is going from the old world to the new world through the Middle Passage. Now, some of it is being dropped off in Africa because they do have to pick up a bit of labor on the way. And then they bring the labor with them, hashtag slaves, to the new world. And when they do that, they're bringing stuff from the new world back to the old world. And that is everything that is on the top of this is going to the old world for the first time. Okay. We did not have potatoes in the old world before this. So and now we will talk about this in a second because I do. Well, honestly, the potato is a very interesting product because and I would put a star next to potatoes because it's the most important one um, early on the poor people were going to really benefit from the potato. The problem is they wouldn't eat it. And they wouldn't eat it because it looks like devil food. And it comes from the ground. So back in the day, they were really worried that it grew underground. And also when you pull it out of the ground, it looks like it has like eyes and things. And so they're like, no, uh, -uh I'm not eating that. Um, but the problem was it's really cheap. It grows anywhere. These aren't problems. These are just issues with, you know, the, the actual poor people not eating it. Um, so they, what they did in Europe is they went on a full-blown ad campaign to get the, young, the poor people to eat it because they realized that it would actually save them from starvation. So they talk about all of the amazing things that the potato will actually do for them. And later this year, when we get to the agricultural revolution, I'll have you read the potato documents and the potato documents are about six to eight pages of excerpts of the ad campaign for how amazing the potato is. It's actually hilarious. Like when you read through it, you're like, the potatoes are the greatest thing ever invented because they, they basically go full blown ad campaign to get them to do it. Yeah. So everything here is going from the old world to the new world. Everything here is going from the new world back to the old world. Going to the old world, meaning for the first time. Yes. Uh, and, and vice versa. So everything there is going pushing to the new world, 
top, pushing back to the old world. Now, let me just briefly go over one other thing and then I'll get to questions and do that. And I'll come back to this slide because I'm going to have you write things down. So I'm going to go forward and then come back. For us, there's a cycle of conquest or uh, colonization that is going to start happening. And we're going to get into this in more detail on Monday. They start out as explorers, very quickly turn into conquistadors. Or if you're Magellan, you try to do both. Uh, and then you just kind of slowly make your way towards permanent settlers and colonies. But this is a process. It's not like, oh, we just immediately go and send settlers. That's, that's not the case. M many times you have to kind of prepare those places for settlers. And the missionaries are also kind of in between there and going as well. So um, this process of colonization will absolutely help the old world or Europe specifically. Um, move very quickly past much of the rest of the world. And this is really the premise of guns, germs, and steel. And I know that there are, you know, someone like a Howard Zinn, which is a, he's a very progressive historian, meaning that he likes to do history from the, the average or even lower class rather than looking at history the other way, which is more traditional. Usually history is written by the conquerors, people that are going out and taking over people. They write the history and it's generally nicer to them because, you know, you don't want to be mean to yourself if you're the one writing the history. Well, if you do history the other way and you try to learn how people that from the lower classes are experiencing history, that's the Howard Zinn model. And uh, Noam Chomsky does the same thing. But those types of historians tend to look at this and are heavily critical of the people taking over other people. Rightly so, I think. You need both. You need both to be critical and to tell both sides of the story. But... What Zinn will come up with is this idea that, well, first of all, Zinn talks about how Columbus basically, when he settled or went into the New World, he forced the natives to get gold and silver, which we know he did. Um, but Zinn also talks about how if they didn't come back with enough gold and silver, he would cut off their hand. And if they didn't come out with more again, he cut off the other hand. Um, and this is something that later in the uh, Africa scramble, the Belgians will do as well. And the Belgians kill something like I can't remember the exact number. It's like anywhere from two to six million. I know that's a really wide number. It's anywhere from like two to six million people they killed in the in the Congo um, when they took over the Belgian Congo. What's that? They need protein for their waffles. But that's not. That is terrible. All right, uh, we're just gonna. Go. But anyway, what what uh, <laughs> wasn't expecting that. Uh, now, what what is? <laughs> Uh, but, but what is going to happen, and I think that this is important, is that some of the, the more revisionist history and, the, and the, the revision of history over time, people would say stuff like, well, Columbus had uh, people on his own ships that had smallpox and measles and things like that, and he used blankets as like bioterrorism, like, hey, here, here's some free blankets, and gave the natives smallpox and measles. Now, is that accurate? Possibly. It, is it 100% accurate? We don't know. Um, is it probable? Maybe. Um, what we do know is that they probably didn't even need the blankets to spread the diseases because the contact rate of the Europeans to the natives was pretty high and the immune systems in the New World were not ready for the stuff that you guys see down here at the bottom. So all of the stuff that is underlined here can kill you very quickly 
if your immune system has never dealt with it before. And so what ends up happening to the natives is that many of them die through disease. Um, the numbers are staggering when you look at the amount of people that are dying. And if you're fighting them and they're dying already from disease, it's not really a fair fight. And you have technologies, guns, germs, and steel, that whole thing. You have technologies that really put you ahead on that front as well. So it, it ends up becoming a really unfair fight. Um, now, Cortez utilizes also a number of political ways in which he takes over the Aztecs. Uh, Pizarro also utilizes a number of political ways that he takes over the Incans. And we'll talk about that more on Monday. So I'll end there and I'll get to that uh, stuff on Monday. And that way you guys can write down uh, the stuff here and we can move on. Uh, last time we were together, we looked at the uh, conquering of the Aztec Empire or the Mexica Empire. And one of the things that really becomes evident, I think, is that in reading when you guys read the Cortez document back to Charles V, there is a element there where Charles is almost just accepting his story because it's probably good news in a period of bad news, right? So you have the Reformation going on at the same time. And when Cortez uh, takes over the Aztecs, and we talked about how uh, Moctezuma eventually met him. And when he did meet him, uh, Cortez eventually will kidnap Moctezuma in the process of getting away from uh, the Mexica Empire or the Aztec Empire. There's a bit of a skirmish. Moctezuma's injured. He dies in captivity. Cortez comes back with a thousand soldiers and 75,000 native soldiers as well and takes over the Mexica Empire. Um, and over the next half year to a year, he's putting down the insurrections that are going to kind of follow, right? So um, this is one of the first of the conquistadors. The, the second example of this is Pizarro in uh, the Incan Empire. And if you did the reading um, from the textbook, you know that Pizarro does something very similar. It almost feels like the same playbook. Uh, Atahualpa is the current leader of the Incan Empire. And what he does is he actually tries to lay a trap for Pizarro. And he gets kind of double-crossed by Pizarro. So Pizarro is supposed to meet him at a location that they, de they decided on. And Atahualpa, which, by the way, if I say their names wrong, I'm sorry, I tried. Um, but when it comes to uh, the relationship there, Pizarro figures out it's probably a trap and instead tells his soldiers to find their, the leader of the Incans, which they do. They kidnap him. Sound familiar? Kidnap him, sell him back to the Incan Empire for ransom and then kill him on trumped up charges. So basically like they do almost a similar thing that what happened to Moctezuma and then eventually progress towards conquering the Incan Empire over the next couple of years. And that process uh, is going to feel a lot like how the Aztecs were taken over. It's that combination of what Jared Diamond eventually will call guns, germs, and steel. It's the way that the Europeans were just set into a position of they had more of a resistance to certain diseases that were killing the natives in a in vast amounts or at least forcing them to fight when they're very sick. Um, plus, they're fighting at a disadvantage from a technology standpoint. 
And many times the Spaniards were the only ones with horses. And so they kind of are fighting at a significant disadvantage. And because of that, as we go forward, the Spanish had taken out two of the greatest empires in what is now Latin America. And at that point, going forward, you're going to have, and we, we looked at this the other day, this kind of cycle of conquest and colonization, where you go from explorer down, and then you become a conquistador uh, to a missionary group where their missionaries are sent, sometimes even with the conquistadors, um, to establish missions. And, and that was a process the Spanish believed almost justified their taking over of other people, right? Because if you're going to take someone over, you have to justify to yourself that you're bringing with you civilization. Remember, this is what Alexander the, the Great thought he was doing when he was expanding the Greek uh, empire as, as far the Macedon Empire as far as he could, is he thought, I'm bringing the light of civilization with me. And these people are going to be better off after. Same thing the Romans thought, right? The Romans are going, we are going through the civilized world, creating, creating civilization, creating this thing. The Spanish think they're just the second coming. Like, okay, we found a new place to explore. We are going to bring with us civilization. The process of that is, you know, missionaries, eventually settlers. And by the time you get to a colony, things are going to change because they're going to have to start rationalizing their racism. Because remember how racism worked in the early Renaissance period? Remember when, you, when I showed you guys that painting of Titian and Titian had the, the really exotic slave that, he, that she dressed up and, and uh, puts a pearl earring in, the, in his ear and, and he's dressed like a, almost like a doll. Like it's, it's really kind of uncomfortable for us to think about it now because it's so overtly racist. But you got to think that back then, the Europeans see themselves as the beacon of everything that is good about civilization. And in the process of doing so, they have to rationalize why taking someone else over or telling them that their civilization is better is a good thing and not a bad thing. And so racism early was really about religion. It was, I was born with the blood of a Catholic, or I was born with the blood of a Jew, or I was born with the blood of a Muslim. And in the Spanish Inquisition, they get to the point where they almost say, well, you can't change the blood. You know, they, they, they were very weary of people that were conversos, people that were apparently becoming Catholic because, eh, are you really becoming a thing, right? They're really questioning if that's a thing. Well, in the New World, this is during a period of the Reformation where they're losing followers in the Old World. So the new world becomes opportunity for more followers, right? Again, they're doing the Lord's work. And in the process of doing the Lord's work, they're thinking, okay, these people are going to be Christians. And if they're going to be Christians, that means that they have to be part of our system. But then they can't get past the fact that they're thinking, well, we're the best. So how do we organize this thing? And so what we get is this very strong colonial class system. And it's up here for you so you can see it. And on the next slide, it kind of shows you what they mean. So I'll show you that and I'll come back to this little triangle here for you a second. Um, if you were a peninsulare, it's, it's a reference to the Iberian Peninsula, which meant you were from Spain or Portugal, right? Um, and if you were from Spain or Portugal, originally you were the highest class system, the peninsulare. The next class was a Creole. And if you were Creole, 
it meant that you were from Spain or Portugal, meaning your parents were, but born in the New World. So you're just under a peninsulare because you're born in the New World. Sounds actually kind of weird. Then, if you're mestizo or uh, mulatto, you kind of have a next class in this new system. And that's two different types of mixing of races. You have one where generally it was men mixing with native women or uh, slave women, but sometimes it went the other way. Most of the time it was men coming as settlers because most women wouldn't go. It just didn't make sense back then. But if you were a, a man of Spanish descent and you had a child by an Amera Indian, which means specifically like native uh, of what is now Latin America, uh, you would have mestizo kids. If you had a uh, Spaniard mixed with an African slave, now you have a mulatto kid. And that would be the next kind of class underneath the peninsulares at the top, the creoles, then mestizo, mulatto. And then at the very bottom, it was anything native or slave. And that was this kind of very rigid class system very much built on race. Just to show you, um, we're not making this up. Uh, this is from the Mexican archives, uh, and I had one of my TAs actually find this. Um, but this is also in your textbook, and it just gives you a, a pictorial diagram of the different mixing of races and what they would be called back then. Um, and this is, it, there's 16 of them. Um, very specific ways in which you could mix races to get, and, and it's a very uh, hierarchical scale of European being, being the highest value to most native or most slave being the lowest value and then everything in between. Um, now, as far as for us, and I'll go back to the triangle at the end of this so you can write it down if you want the triangle. The impact of Europe's expansion is going to be this. Uh, the native populations are destroyed by disease. We can't really debate that. That happened. Um, there is going to be a massive influx of wealth, specifically coming to Southern Europe. And that's actually going to be a problem, not a good thing. And we'll talk about that in a second. You have the significant increase of new products, which we've discussed before with the Colombian Exchange. And you have an increase of colonial rivalry, which will be demonstrated through a variety of conflict coming very quickly. Now, I'm going to go forward before, and I'll come back so you can write these down if you want. But I just want to show you this chart. In Spain, this is a chart of the influx of gold and silver. From about 1516 to 1660 is the last date on here. The silver increase peaks right around 1600. But the person who takes over right in there is whom? Philip II. Remember, Charles V is dealing with Protestant Reformation. 1555, he, he signs the Peace of Augsburg and rage quits. And then Philip II takes over. And Philip II believes that his calling in life is to re-Catholicize Europe, make Europe Catholic again. And so his belief is that I am going to just dump silver into the southern economy to build armies, build ships, invade England, invade the Spanish Netherlands, 
help wherever I can in the Holy Roman Empire to make Europe Catholic. And it's so bad that they hyperinflate, hyperinflate the southern economy. And when they hyperinflate, or he hyperinflates the southern economy, it will shift the money. If, if Europe, again, was a uh, circle, all the money was down here at the bottom early on. And then the, the economy goes south. And sorry for the lack of or actual irony there. Um, it starts going this way. So the money and the, the power will start shifting outside of Spain. So that's where we're end for now. And then uh, tomorrow we're going to get a little bit into wrapping up this unit. And next week we'll get into the absolutism unit along with science and religious war. Thank you.